0: And the big question here that Luke takes up is, what has Jesus come to do? This liberator who calls for our utmost allegiance, what is the work he's come to accomplish? How will he set us free? And the shocking answer to that question, the answer that will turn everything upside down, the answer that will make Jesus (laughs) and searching to gather all these firsthand accounts of Jesus. Luke's writing in the 60s, 70s, the first century, 60s, 70 AD. He says, he's gathered all these firsthand accounts of Jesus, put them into an orderly account, so that his young friend named Theophilus might know the certainty of the things he did. He wants the faith of his friend not to rest on wishful thinking or on vague notions, but on the certainty. So it's our prayer that as we launch into the gospel loop again, again, that that same sort of assurance, that same sort of assuring certainty will increasingly be ours. And out of that assurance, we can be the kind of people who are a people of love and hope and even joy in the midst of our city that so desperately needs all of things. So what do we pray? And then we'll dive into those. 15. Let's pray. We are grateful that we get a chance on Sunday mornings to gather together as a people in this new covenant that you have want for us, where there is grace and forgiveness life. God, thank you that through your word you speak to us. Thank you that we have these documents that have been written and preserved and inspired by your spirit so that we can hear afresh the truth of who you are and what you've done Jesus and what you continue to do through your spirit your this morning, we pray as we attend to your word, we ask this humbling in the name of Jesus, amen. So we're getting up to Luke 19, verses 11 through 28. Uh, this is the passage that ends the second section of Luke's gospel and begins the third and the final section of Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. So Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he, that is Jesus, proceeded to tell parable because he was here to Jerusalem. Because they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten tenas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your Mina has made ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful and very little, well. you shall have authority over those But And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five Minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five then another came, saying, Lord, here is your it which I kept laying away in the handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, as you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, him, Take the need from him, give it to the one who has ten this." And he said to him, Lord, He has ten meters. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, slaughter them for me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead. About expectations. Expectations, of course, can be a very powerful thing. Imagine the school child waking up, seeing snow on the ground, expecting for a snow day. And yet being told that no, despite their expectations, they still have to go to school. That's going to be a rough morning for all of all. Or imagine the newly married couple. about getting a new job. Finally, this is the place where I can make my mark, get ahead, earn respect. It's not hard to see that these kinds of almost unconscious expectations can be the source of all sorts of misunderstanding disappointment. But have you ever considered that that that's also true spiritually? Many expect religion to always say they find out that they're actually Then they expect Jesus to be just another good world teacher, and then are surprised or even taken aback when they find out that he's claiming a whole lot more than that. they expect that following Jesus will always make our life easier, and then are surprised, even upset, or discouraged when the road can In verse 11 of our passage, we see that Jesus tells this parable because he's about to arrive in Jerusalem, and the people around him expect the kingdom of God to appear immediately. The kingdom of God, that is, the world healing, justice-bringing, evil, and the reign of the Creator God on the earth. That the kingdom was even in their midst, so they're expecting the kingdom of God now coming up to Jerusalem to appear. Yeah. But although Jesus had indeed launched God's kingdom in His own person and work, the kingdom of God in its complete fullness was not going to appear yet. In other words, in Jesus, the kingdom of God was inaugurated, but its consummation was. Not We should not expect immediate victory, but ongoing responsibility. Look again at it, verses 12 through 14. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten units and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We didn't want this man to bring Now, When Herod the Great died, his son Archelaus actually went to Rome to try to convince Caesar to make him king over Judea in the place of his father. And the Jewish citizens disliked Archelaus so much that they sent an embassy to Rome to tell Emperor that they didn't want him to rule So I think the Emperor ended up make, making him sort of a sort of second-class ruler and said, like, Well, if you do a job, then you can I just put the live beat on next door in the following. So really this idea that matter. one would go away in order to receive the authority of the I a a of to obey his was. does it mean? What does the clue do with to the here? And Jesus is here applying it to his own ministry. His arrival in Jerusalem isn't going to result in an evading kingdom. Rather, he's going to depart for some time and then return in the future to full authority to obey. And as the story of which the Gospel unfolds and as that story continues in the past, that's exactly what we see. Jesus accomplishes his work in Jerusalem and then ascends to the Father, promising that he will one day return in glory to heaven. This is what Jesus himself and the rest of the New Testament teaches, and it's what the church has professed from the very beginning, that we live in between Christ's first and second coming. His first coming in grace to to purchase our redemption and to inaugurate the kingdom, and his second coming in glory to judge and to And so, like those first disciples, we should not expect immediate victory in this in-between time. We still wrestle, and we will still wrestle, with sin and temptation. We will still battle sickness and death. Our relationships will be hard at times. Our emotional life will not always be easy. (coughs) Being a follower of Jesus, being filled with His Spirit... Does not many guaranteed health, wealth, or sinless perfection. And if we expect those things, we will be sorely disappointed. And we can even end up shaking our fist to God. But reality, he hasn't us with those things. Not yet. Rather than immediate victory, Jesus is telling us to expect ongoing responsibility. In the parable ten, servants are each given one beaver, which is a unit of money that's about three to four months' wages for a day worker. treasure, all of it is a gift for them to be used in the engagement When you need to step out and do something risky. But no great business venture ever really was a success without a little bit, or maybe a lot of risk, right? You have to do something outside of your comfort zone. Like striking up a conversation with your neighbor. Or maybe volunteering with a classroom full of first graders. Could there be anything to do that? But in business, I've heard you don't just need a plan, and you don't just need a willingness to take risks. You need planners. You can't do it alone. And discipleship is the same. We need each other. The business of God isn't a one-person operation. We need various things and talents and resources working together in this business of the kingdom. In business, it seems to be. You need confidence. Because it's not easy. Look at verse 14. Jesus tells us to expect that many people will not want to to the business. Some will passively reject Jesus as their king. Some will actively reject Jesus as their king. So as we engage in business, things aren't going to be easy. Discipleship is time to be hard we will face setbacks, physically, emotionally, relationally. What confidence can we have in the midst of the trials? Well, the glimmer of good news here in this first part of the Bible is this, that our King has looked upon us, servants, and He's made us his the house. The Gospel The news that God accepts us by grace and not works through Jesus elevates us and gives us a standing in the family of God. No longer just servants, but partners in this business of the kingdom. What wonderful news is that? That even if setbacks and trials come, we are partners with the king, representing his interests in the world, awaiting. than to be engaged in the business. If you were a Lost fan, uh, you'll know that it was six seasons of high drama, plot twists and turns, character development, and then in the final episode, rather than drawing all those threads together and making a meaningful whole out of the series, the final episode simply had the characters reunite, realize that much of their story didn't matter, and they simply walked into the light of the afterlife. You can tell i (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 they simply move on is that what we should expect mere reunion <laughs> according to Jesus in verses 15-27 through 27, we should expect not <laughs> a mere moving on mere reunion but a thorough reckoning In the parable, the nobleman returns after being granted the kingdom, and he calls to him above his servants to whom he entrusted his money and the citizens who rejected him. Now, it's this final group that probably causes us the most concern. That description of judgment, verse 27, strikes us as incredibly harsh, even offensive. But think for a moment of all great. something shocking. Something in your face to wake up to reality. Isn't much good art like this? Whether it's a modernist painting or a punk rock album, it's raw, it's in your face, so that the viewers of the listener will actually wake up to the reality of the problems that are trying. That we feel deep in our bones that this life matters, that our choices have dignity, that we aren't simply dust specks on a turntable of oblivion. No, this horrible reckoning by the king brings the good news that our choices matter, that life is not meaningless. But the harsh reality is that one. I do The warning here is to nominal Christians, that is, those who identify outwardly with Christ in name, but for whom there is no inward reality, no real relationship in Jesus. You see, it's not outward works that Jesus is looking for, but inward reality, inward sincerity. Things like baptism or church attendance or being able to recite a creed, those are all good things. They can be fruits of genuine faith, but in and of themselves, they are not sufficient. <coughs> now, this doesn't mean that we are ultimately saved by our works. The good fruit of our life does not put us in a saving relationship with God. We could never be with We are saved by faith in Christ's righteousness, but as the reformers would say again and again, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is dead real. A living tree produces fruit, an active bank account produces profit. Faith without works is dead faith. No real faith at all. And this last sermon has nothing to show when the master returns. He did nothing with his meaning. Is this me? Is this me? Having grown up in a time and place where the Gospels clearly proclaim, when Scripture is printed and available in our own language, if it just a click away on our smartphone, we can read the very word of God whenever, whenever we want. When scholarship, When friends and family around us are trusting and following Christ? Will we have nothing to show for this man that God has given to us? Will we not entrust ourselves wholeheartedly to the King? <laughs> and notice something important here. This servant disobeys his master's wishes and does no business. And then to justify his inactivity, his rejection of the nobleman's wishes, he creates in his mind a picture of the nobleman. And, and what is that created picture like? Well, this nobleman, in his mind, is harsh. And he's demanding. He hates when he did not have a he grieves when he did not so. And of course, the nobleman's generosity to the previous servants for resolved. And yet, in this servant's mind, this is the picture he's created. And this picture of the nobleman he creates as severe as the dandy that allows this servant to blame who? For his disobedience. Well, he blames the devil. I was afraid of you, so I did nothing. Because you're so harsh. Do you notice the hard dynamic of sin that Jesus is laying there for us? We disobey. Create a false image of God that justifies our disobedience. And then we use that false image to turn and put the blame back on God Do you see that dynamic in your own heart at times? I know I've seen it mine. And it should make us trouble. And so the lesson to take away from this last sermon is that we must make use of the meaning of God's influence. we must not allow the false images of God in our minds to keep us from taking advantage of that gift that God is it's not enough to be a Christian in name only as verse 26 shows us if you look there if we are a Christian in name only even that name be taken away from us in the end. Not outward identity, but inward, living relationship with Jesus. That's what happens. And how do you do that? First, something called repentance, which is admitting to God that you're saved and you need forgiveness. And then say, Trust. For those who make that step, there is also a In verses 16 through 19, the servants who had engaged in business with the Master's Venus, we find them there. They've taken a risk. They've stepped out of faith. They've come, and they come with what they've gained. Some, no doubt, have gained it through hardship and trial. Some have probably spent sleepless nights wondering how it would all turn out. Some may have lost friends or family members along the way. Some probably made deep sacrifices. But at last, this day of reckoning comes. Now, what we have to see in the parable at this point is the radical, general, Tells us, I think it was Mark Anthony. History tells us that when Mark Anthony tried to reward his soldiers' service, uh, he gave them a mina as a gift. And they basically mocked him because it was such a small one. So he had to up his gifts a, uh, a more. Which goes to show that a mina was something, but not much. And yet, when these servants come before their king, some, some having gained ten minas, which was not an unheard of return in the first century, and some
1: having gained five minas,
0: what is the reward? In return for a Venus of service, the servants are rewarded with the rule over whole cities. The reward is lavishly disproportionate. For the small amount they return, they are granted unprecedented dignity, position, importance, and honor in the kingdom of God. I mean, imagine. I mean, if I gave you, let's say I gave you $3,000 to invest, not a small a huge amount of money. And then let's say you came back to me and you said, hey man, I actually turned you $3,000 into $10,000. I'd be pretty happy about that. What you wouldn't expect is, great job, you get the whole city of new name. That's hypocrisy. And that is the By grace, and we are worthy in grace. Do you see what Jesus wants us to see? Is that the business of discipleship—the plans, the risk, the trials, the hardship—it will all be worth it when the King comes to judge. Even if you feel as if your demon has gained so little, it is not little in the eyes of. In greatest need. It is worth cities upon cities in his lives. So don't hesitate to give this king your all. To live your life for To plan, to risk, to suffer, even to die for This is no harsh, severe title. Despite what that final servant might say, or despite what the voice in your head might sometimes want you to hear, this king's heart is abounding in grace. After all, what gives this king the right judge? What is, what is it that Jesus has done that put far country to squander his wealth. And you see, Jesus, too, would go to the far country. He would go out into the far country where we had squandered it all down into our sin and our exhaustion. And he would go out to the far country of our idolatry and our rebellion. And to the far country he would go and it would lead to us. And in that far country there, He wouldn't wait for himself to keep it. He died on the cross <clears throat> so that we could receive what no one expected sinners to receive. A place.